As we've seen, Suleiman proved to be a fearsome and ruthless warrior. His military campaigns and exploits truly speak for themselves, as most of the lands upon which he set his sights almost always swiftly fell under Ottoman control. But, however, it's important to note that Suleiman the warrior was only one side of him. To his people, he was a fair and just ruler, one who was, in fact, given the moniker Kanuni, lawgiver, by his subjects. How did he earn this famous nickname? What laws and political reforms did he pass and introduce respectively during his reign? And how did he almost single-handedly bring about the golden age of Ottoman art? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and join me for the third and final part of Suleiman the Magnificent Story, right here and right now on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. When the Sultan wasn't away fighting campaigns or leading his men to victory against the Empire's enemies, he was, in fact, doing much in the way of bettering both his people and his dominion. This included the passing of new legislation, including a universal code of law that was meant to cover all subjects, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian alike, in a rapidly changing empire. At the time, the law of the land, so to speak, was Sharia, or sacred law in Arabic, the divine legal code of the religion of Islam. There was, however, another more distinct set of laws known as kanuns in Turkish, translating to something like canonical legislation, which were solely dependent upon the sultan's will. This canonical legislation covered such areas as taxation, land tenure, and criminal law. Combining these laws with those issued by each of the nine sultans who preceded him, Suleiman was able to create a universal legal code, one that incorporated elements from, yet carefully tread the line between, both sharia and kanuns. Known as the Kanuni Osmani, or Ottoman laws, it was adopted by the then Grand Mufti Ebu Sud. A Grand Mufti, by the way, is the head of Islamic law over a sovereign state, and would remain the standard Ottoman legal code for over three centuries. Such policies included prescribing a set of fines for specific offenses and reducing the number of death or mutilation sentences, while simultaneously levying taxes on various items, including animals and trade profits. While his empire flourished, Suleiman's rule coincided with a particularly dark period in a country on the opposite side of the Mediterranean, Spain. The 15th and 16th centuries saw the Catholic Reconquista, or reconquering of Spain and Portugal from the Moors, Muslims from North Africa who had maintained control over much of the Iberian Peninsula for centuries. The infamous Inquisition followed, in which Portugal and Spain's Muslim and Jewish populations were forced to renounce their respective fates in favor of Catholicism under penalty of death. This horrifying event saw an influx of Jewish refugees fleeing Iberia for the religious freedom of the Ottoman Empire. No sooner had they arrived did Suleiman welcome them with open arms, but he even went a step further. At the suggestion of his personal physician, himself a Sephardic Jew and survivor of the Inquisition named Moses Harmon, the Sultan issued a ferman, an official decree by the monarch of an Islamic state, denouncing blood libels, or the false accusation of Jews using Christian blood and religious practices against the Jewish people. With all these reforms under his belt, it's no surprise how Suleiman earned the title of Kanuni, but perhaps even greater than his reputation as lawgiver was the veritable golden age of culture and artistic development his reign ushered in. Up until that point, Ottoman culture had looked to the great empires of Persia and China for artistic inspiration, imitating those styles in favor of creating their own. However, under Suleiman's rule, a new uniquely Turkish identity was forged at last. State-commissioned artistic societies, known as Eli Hiref, or communities of craftsmen, began popping up within the imperial residence at the Topkapı Palace. Following a rigorous yet rewarding apprenticeship in a given field, these craftsmen and artists could advance in and excel at their respective crafts, and were paid handsomely in annual installments on a quarterly basis. In short, the arts were of the utmost importance to Suleiman, who saw them as an integral part of an empire's great 
greatness and one of the true hallmarks of quote-unquote civilized society. This emphatic, to say nothing of enthusiastic, attitude is attested to in records and documents from 1526 onward, in which it was revealed that some 40 artistic societies had sprung up that year alone, garnering some 600 members across the board. The most coveted position for an artist, artisan, or craftsman was a place directly within the imperial court. These Ehlihidefs attracted some of the greatest and most skilled workers to the Sultan's residence, and they came, quite literally, from every part of the empire, and as well as every creed. Accounts recall a diverse blend of Europeans, both Christian and Jew alike, North Africans, Arab Muslims, and even some from as far afield as the border with Persia, all flocking to the Topkapa Palace to try their hand at impressing the monarch with their talents. The resulting Ottoman style that was forged from this pool of artisans was a blend of European, Arab, and native Turkish cultures, each of which blended seamlessly to create something truly new and stunningly beautiful. Such services employed by the imperial court were goldsmiths, jewelers, furriers, bookbinders, and painters. But of all the crafts in demand at this time, one of the biggest was tilework, and it was under Suleiman's rule that it truly came into its own. To this day, the Turks enjoy a worldwide reputation for their gorgeous tiles, and it all goes back to this golden age. They're defined by elegant floral patterns, intricate, at times geometric motifs, and even bird and animal designs that make for a lavish, sumptuous whole. Rich reds, greens, and blues pop off the otherwise stark white surfaces, with this particular shade of blue now known as turquoise, from the French turquoise, meaning of the Turks. Such tiles can be seen adorning the walls of mosques, madreses, that is, Ottoman Islamic universities, and imperial government facilities throughout Turkey, the likes of which also quite literally rose under Suleiman's sponsorship. Indeed, some of the most famous structures still standing in Istanbul today were commissioned by the Sultan to not only glorify the empire, but to make the city the center of Islamic civilization. The success of this building boom is attributed to one man, Suleiman's chief architect, Mimar Sinan. Sinan's plans led to the development of some 300 magnificent sculptures whose opulence remains unmatched to this day. Of these, two are considered to be Sinan's greatest personal triumphs, the Suleimanie and Selimiye mosques in Istanbul and Edirne, respectively, named, of course, after Suleiman himself, as well as the Sultan's father and predecessor, Selim I. The breadth of the Sultan's scope and vision extended to other parts of the empire as well, including several renovations carried out in the holy cities of Jerusalem and Mecca. The Dome of the Rock was lovingly restored at this time, as were the walls of the old city, the latter of which can still be seen in all their glory, complete with imperial Ottoman insignia in present-day Jerusalem. The Kaaba was re renovated as well, and while in Arabia, Suleiman left behind an inscription in the wall of the Al-Masjid Al-Nabawi Mosque in Medina. The literary arts also flourished at this time, no doubt due in large part to the fact that Suleiman himself, aside from being a great leader and statesman, was also a skilled poet in both his native Turkish as well as Persian, the latter being a lingua franca in several West and Central Asian powers of the day. His verse is especially beautiful, and riddled with a surprising amount of emotional depth unseen by other Ottoman monarchs who had dabbled in the medium. Writing under the Tachalus, that is, pen name Muhibi, meaning lover, he penned lines and elegies that have since become adages within the collective Turkish consciousness. One such proverb, which has since become one of his most famous compositions, goes, The people think of wealth and power as the greatest fate, but in this world a spell of health is the best state. What men call sovereignty is a worldly strife and constant war. Worship of God is the highest throne, the happiest of all the states. Such pearls of wisdom seem to flow freely from the Sultan's pen, and it's in such words that he lives up to Signore Contarini's famed description of him as an introspective person, a thinker of the highest order. 
Of course, other poets rose to prominence at this time thanks to his being an enthusiastic practitioner and patron of the literary arts. Such greats of Ottoman literature as Fuzuli and Baki, from Azerbaijan and Turkey respectively, composed their most famous verses under Suleiman's reign. Indeed, according to the 19th century Scottish literary historian and orientalist, Elias John Wilkinson Gibb, Quote, At no time, even in Turkey, was greater encouragement given to poetry than during the reign of this sultan. Unquote. As one can see, Suleiman left behind a lasting impression not just on his native Turkey, but on world history as a whole. Few leaders have rivaled him in greatness in regards to their treatment of their subjects as well as the various civil and artistic projects they sought to create. To stroll through the city of Istanbul today is a veritable time capsule of this age of prosperity, reflected in the mosques, bathhouses, and other institutions that reflect the glories of this particular period of the Ottoman Empire's long history. Though a moniker bestowed upon him in the West, Suleiman, it seems, truly lived up to his name, for he was one of the few world leaders in history who was absolutely magnificent. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this comprehensive look at the man behind the Ottoman Empire's golden age. It's a history that, I feel, is oft overlooked in this part of the world, and was an empire that rivaled Rome, the Mongol, and British empires in terms of greatness. If you like history and wish to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you can do just that. Click on the support button and you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget or monetary situation, especially in these tough times. Listening and sharing also helps spread the word, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we explore a Viking incursion into France, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.